of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 155, and the Cape economy is growing in leaps and bounds. The years between 1840 and 1843 were a fascinating mix of economic development and military endeavour. Coming shortly was the first real skirmish between the Boers and the British, a mini-war like a mini-bar, full of little side stories like devilish pick-me-uppers, but as you know, when you pay the hotel bill, the mini-bar is an expensive devil. So too will this mini-war prove to be expensive, particularly for the British. Yes, it's a mixture of metaphors in this episode. We've spent so much time covering deadly serious events that perhaps a little light relief is in order. We'll be returning to the Ravenport Hotel, aka Durban, of Captain Smith and his 263 men, and unfortunately there's going to be fisticuffs, bullets, death and traitorous acts. Inland, in the Transorangia, and along the mountains above the Caledon Valley, Nationalities were stirring, which we live with today. King Mishweshwe was gathering his Basutu together on the Tabo Basu and mentoring the king with the French missionaries. Across the orange in the semi-desert running up to Kuruman and across the northwest of the country, other mission stations were focal points of education, economy and controversy. But it's true that the most significant development in South Africa after 1835 was the expansion of agricultural production. Luckily for us, an organization called EGSA, founded in 2004, is the virtual branch of the Genealogical Society of South Africa. It provides a virtual home for everyone from the beginner to the most advanced family historian. And buried in their digital archives are digitalized copies of the Cape Frontier Times, a publication that began its life in Grahamstown in 1840. In between notices about births, marriages and deaths, that are known by old-school newspaper editors as hatches, matches and dispatches, is a great deal of material about money, commodities and the economy. First, a few notes about hatches, matches and dispatches. This from Wednesday, 13th of May, 1840. Mrs. Edward Roberts, late from Cape Town, begs to inform the inhabitants of Grahamstown that she intends opening an establishment for a limited number of young ladies at the Drosty House. Well, how about this from Wednesday, 20th of May, 1840? We, the undersigned, intending to give up tailoring at Fort Beaufort, wish to inform those indebted that their accounts must be paid by 30th of June next, or they will be handed over for recovery by legal purposes. Ah, the terrible creditors, failing to cough up. Nothing changes. All this from Wednesday, 30th of May, under the headline, Highway Robbery. A Mr. Mills was apparently proceeding to Grahamstown last Friday from Mill River on horseback when he was accosted by what he said were three Hottentots who asked him for some tobacco, which they obtained. Then they begged some money to buy food and he took his purse out of his pocket, which contained fifty pounds in notes and gold, when one laid a hand upon the bridle of his horse while the other two seized the purse, with which they immediately made off. Sounds a bit like theft out of cars in traffic. But wait, there's more. And Mr. S. Humphreys is offering a good opportunity to any person who may feel disposed to carry on all the trade, consisting of blue, black and claret superfine cloths, fancy and drab cashmeres, splendid buff cashmere and Valencia waistcoating, also silk Valencia, superior white cord, white and brown drills, 
Beaverteen, white jeans, striped nankinet, canvas, gloves, braces, trouser straps, gents, superior white and black beaver hats, and a variety of tailor trimmings. Obviously, there was a growing need for consumables. Just for the record, Beaverteen isn't made from beavers. It's a thick, durable cotton fabric with a textured surface and a short, soft layer on the top. This fabric is often used for making things like pants, jackets or upholstery because of its strength and texture. And Nankinet, in French, is toile de coton en tissu serait à solide de couleur jean clé fabrique originellement à Nankin, plus haut indice est en Europe, utilisé principalement dans la confection masculine. Sorry for the bad French. Which translated as cotton canvas with a tight and sturdy weave, light yellow in colour, originally manufactured in Nanking, then in India and Europe, primarily used in men's clothing. Thus, the flow of goods throughout the British Empire, the cloth originating in other Nanking and China, or perhaps India or even Europe, all of this flowing into the Eastern Cape market. Americans had also just discovered what was known as Cape gum. This weeps from a tree known as the Acacia Karoo, or the Karoo Thorn, or if you're into Latin, the Vachelia Karoo. Everyone who's anyone in South Africa knows this tree with its wicked white thorns that stick out for centimetres ready to rip anything to shreds, also known as the Durungboom. Loved by goats who can chew the thorns like they hors d'oeuvres, used by South Africans for millennia as fences. Rope can be fashioned from the inside bark. And traditional healers treat oral thrush and ulcers with the bark too, while the roots are chewed as an aphrodisiac. The root can also be dried and powdered and helps stop nausea. Naturalists loved it too back in the 19th century, using the thorns to stick on insects and butterflies they caught for display. Bush babies love eating acacia karoo gum, and it turned out that Americans like it too, importing from the Cape in the 19th century. Cape gum exports accelerated immensely from 1840, and looking at the Cape Frontier Times data for 1845, £200,000 had been harvested for export by May of that year. The gum is used to manufacture sweets, now known as gum Arabic, and a slightly different version of this gum is produced by other sorts of acacia, mainly in Africa's Sahel region today. And so, after the Sixth Frontier War, matters had settled down to some extent on the Makosa frontier. For the first time, maize and sorghum were purchased for consumption within the colony from Amakosa. Traders began to send their wagons from homestead to homestead in the Eastern Cape to collect corn. Merchants anchored their ships from time to time in Mazeppa Bay and Chief Sahili's country. Colonial horses were now being fed Amakosa-grown barley and ote, and dacha, or marijuana sales, flourished. The Amakosa were spending their earnings from the sale of their grains on consumption goods, as historian Jeff Perrys notes in his book House of Paolo. Apart from Mr. Humphrey's impressive beaver hats et al., there were also blankets, cotton rugs, greatcoats, handkerchiefs, shoes, a veritable hypermarket of goods were flowing around the Cape. What was going on as well was the genesis of an African peasant producer of agricultural goods, and these producers of food would become very important as our story progresses through the 19th century. The trade across the frontier was building an entirely new class of permanent worker whose labour was directly used by the employer and simultaneously the labourer lost the means to pursue an alternative existence. Amatkosa chiefs had previously derived their wealth from cattle 
and other products through tribute or fines. Now their people were exposed to alternative commodities using the pound and shilling, not just the cow. After so many wars and clashes over land, the average young Matkosa who was without property could make his or her way into the Cape to work. By the 1830s, black locations had sprung up around most eastern Cape country towns, and the first internecine or faction fight, as they were known, took place in Grahamstown in 1841 between the Amakosa and the Amamfengu. By the way, the first full-blown race riot in South Africa was still upcoming. That was going to take place in the western Cape town of Richmond in 1849, but that story is for another day. The missionaries believed that physical labor was a moral virtue and that indolence was a sin. They also believed that work should exclude anything to do with cattle. Cows were a means of subsistence that led to idleness and fighting and raiding. Real man's work, they thought, was in the fields, and many mission stations were centers of farm labor. But as you'll know from our series, in Amakosa tradition, it was the women who worked the fields. So a radical shift was taking place when it came to values, culture, mores, society. When a man joined the mission, he was leaving his old ways, leaving behind the world of cattle and the chief's great place, and could often become an object of pity and scorn. However, scorn is one thing, money is another. Chiefs who scorned money were going to go out of fashion and pretty quickly too. The first thing that these new laborers did was buy clothing, apart from alcohol and tobacco, prompted by the missionaries who were terrified of bare skin. Decency was the code word, but it so happened that the new clothing was also warmer and fitted better than the old skins that were tossed around one's body, more comfortable, easier to trade for a hide. No longer did the hide have to be dressed, pierced, sewn up, manipulated for days to soften it up. No, now they just killed an animal, skinned it, took the skin to town and exchanged the product for a pair of trousers, a shirt, hat, shoes. Besides tobacco and alcohol, the new labourers quickly developed a liking for sugar and salt as well. Between 1840 to 1845, this flow of goods and change across the Eastern Cape and further afield was akin to a revolution. Amatkosa men and women would exchange their oats, hay, sorghum, corn and labour for coats, knee breeches, silk stockings, umbrellas, and parasols. And as Perez notes, even more paradoxically, they exchanged their farm produce for capital goods, capex, like ploughs and wagons, thus tying themselves intricately into the colonial economy and therefore the global economy. No more did the chief maintain a grip over the trade in brass, wire, and copper implements and beads and buttons. Now the average worker could buy him or herself a brand new piece of clothing and beads became piffle. Charlie, one of the principal chiefs we've heard about, refused point blank to touch a plough, saying about himself that he is not going to spoil his oxen by ploughing while he has plenty of wives to till the ground for him. Charlie also refused to touch money, saying, I don't want a cow that I can put in my pocket, but one that can walk on its legs. And that is the crux of what was going on. The two kinds of emerging African businessman or woman, all the pressures of the previous excursions and battles, the wagons and the horses, the Dutch farmers, the English settlers, all of this was leading to a momentous social revelation. Some would immediately balk and fight. Others would take hold of this new world. Incredible, don't you think, that to this day, this tension between what could be viewed as Western or European goods an older African tradition continues to stew in the political discourse. 
In July of 1840, the Cape Frontier Times published an important notice about an upcoming public meeting. Of the sheep farmers and agriculturalists of Albany, we, the undersigned landowners and sheep farmers, being of the opinion that a society for the advancement and protection of the interests of the sheep farmer and agriculturalist in Albany is in the highest degree necessary. Hereby invite all those who think such a society desirable to attend a public meeting to be holden at the Commercial Hall, Grahamstown, on Monday, the 13th day of July next, with the permission of His Honour the Lieutenant Governor, when the best means of establishing such a society will be taken into consideration. After the meeting, a public dinner will take place at Watson's Hotel. Unfortunately, a week later, the Cape Frontier Times published a notice that 32-year-old Alexander Anderson, Esquire, had died of dysentery in Udenhay, while Clara, aged one year and eleven months, daughter of Mr. Rice Smith of Welcome Wood near Sidbury, had died, while one year and nine-month-old Leslie, the only son of Mr. Hutchinson of Sidbury, also died. Disease continued to rack the frontier. No one was spared. It was a tough place and a tough time. On the 26th of August, 1840, the Frontier Times reported that smallpox was being fought in Port Elizabeth. Four cases were in hospital, and furthermore, that at no period were there ever more than seven at one time, and that in no single instance has smallpox occurred amongst those who have been recently vaccinated. <laughs> well, that's pretty amazing. Here, way back in the mists of time, was a report about a vaccination for smallpox, and yet, in the 21st century, there are so many afraid of a little in 1842, another report in this evocative Cape Frontier Times, dated Thursday, 25th of August, included a story about a daring robbery. The most interesting facts of the case were that a Mr. W. Kidson, who ran one of the many liquor stores of Grahamstown, had found his cash box missing and a window broken. What is eye-opening is the sum missing from the box. Two thousand pounds. Today, the equivalent in purchasing power is over £14,000. The crims were apprehended in this case and cash recovered, but the amount of money being made by these frontier merchants was significant. Moving along and further northeast. You heard last episode how Cape Governor Sir George Napier, the one-armed veteran of the Peninsula Wars against Napoleon, had signed an order for Captain Thomas Smith and his 263 soldiers to march to Port Natal and seize the valuable port for the British. That, of course, was going to be opposed by the Boers. But not before misinformation, disinformation, miscommunication and a big blaps was going to lead to a fight. Not quite a battle, and yet not a trifling incident either. Men were going to die on both sides, but mainly on the British side. Adding fuel to the propaganda fire, and that was apart from the Volksrat's decision in Peter Maritzburg to kick the Amazulu out of southern Natal and the Midlands, was the sudden and unexpected arrival in Port Natal of an American ship called the Levant. Now you'll be fully aware of how paranoid the English are about the Americans. The War of Independence was fairly fresh in the minds of the Brits. The Yanks had seized their country from the British king. Now here was a ship bristling with American sailors, dropping anchor in Port Natal. The United States trading vessel was named after HMS Levant, a British warship which had been seized by the Americans at the end of the war in 1812, then recaptured by the British. 
It had become a symbol of English stoicism, and here was an American ship of the same name sailing up and down southern Africa's coastline, cocking a snook at the British Empire. That just wouldn't do. Things were heating up in Port Natal. On the 3rd of May, 1842, four Boers, led by Jan Mayer, rode out to where Smith had camped a few kilometres outside Durban and tried to deliver a letter of protest from the Volksrat. Smith refused the letter. I cannot accept a letter of protest against an entrance of the Queen's troops into territory that belongs to the Queen of England, he said. Mayer sent Paul Bester to explain what had transpired to the Volksrat in Maritzburg. By the 4th of May, Smith's army was camping at the Ambulu River near the home of trader James Dunn less than six kilometres from Durban. The English pulled down the Dutch flag and hoisted the Union Jack, then sparked one of the trekkers' guns left near the flagpole. Smith's scouts rode off to Durban and found an area of flat land about a kilometre north of where the CBD is today, called Itafa Amalinda by the Amazulu and Komikis Flachta by the Boers. The troops were readied, bayonets fixed, and began to march to the site watched at a distance by some of the Boers. Soon afterwards, a four-person delegation rode down to Smith with another letter from the Volksrat announcing they had protection from the Dutch government. This was not true, and Smith wasn't fooled. He literally scoffed at the four men, and they departed. On the 5th of May, Captain Smith moved his men to where the old fort is today, four kilometres away from the Boer camp, which was at Congella. Tents were raised, and the English wagons were drawn up in a lager. Things are escalating. The Volksrat went into a tiz, and Pretorius sent a rider to gallop up the Drakensberg to ask Hendrik Portgieter for help, and of course Portgieter said no. After all the bad blood between these two men, the accusations, the mistakes, they still could not let bygones be bygones when faced by an external threat. And a major threat at that. Still Pretorius was stunned by Portgieter's response. Hearing of their plight, other Boers decided to act, and Commandant Johann Gottfried Mocker mobilised their supporters between the Mudder and Fet rivers. It would take them a few days, however, to prepare. In the meantime, the Voortrekkers living in the Midlands between Peter Maritzburg and Viennen also mobilised. Some were already congregating at Congella. The Volksrat had ordered that all Feldkornets should gather their men for battle, and all movement out of the territory by Boers was banned. Pretorius ordered a letter to that effect to be nailed on the door of the Durban Landrost, but it was summarily torn down by Captain Smith, who replaced that letter with the Cape Governor's proclamation that Durban was now under British dominion. On the morning of the 6th of May, Pretorius rode out from Congella with two men to try and talk to Captain Smith. But a few hundred metres from the British camp, Pretorius suddenly realised that Smith had dispatched 100 men along with a cannon, and they were actually marching towards the Boer lager at Congella. Pretorius only had 62 men at his disposal at this point, but had the gall to dispatch messengers to tell Smith to stop. Smith laughed them off, saying that no one could stop him, and they marched onwards. Pretorius dispatched another two men to warn Smith that there were women and children at Congella, and he shouldn't open fire. Finally, Smith halted. Pretorius then rode up to speak to the British commander, who told his men to stand down. As the Boer approached, some English soldiers trained their muskets on him, and one muttered that Pretorius had a belly on him like a drum. His book was somewhat extensive. Pretorius ignored the insult and bowed low, then asked for the British guns to be lowered. He was fearful of being accidentally shot, he said. Pretorius wanted to parley with Smith either at Congella or the British camp. Smith refused, saying they'd talk right where they were. An exchange of views took place for the next 45 minutes. 
where Pretorius warned Smith that he was not welcome, and Smith warned Pretorius that he was in no position to oppose the might of the British Empire, then they appeared to find some common ground. And this where miscommunication turns from irritating to downright catastrophic. What transpired was lost in translation, it appeared. Smith thought that Pretorius had promised his Boers would disperse and return to their farms, when Pretorius had actually said that the Boers would return to Congella to await instructions from the Volksrat. With that, Smith returned to his camp and Pretorius to Congella, and by now, Voortrekkers had ridden into that camp in their droves. There were now 264 armed Boers ready for a scrap. What is probably the biggest irony of this coming clash was a letter about to be sent by the new Secretary of State in England, Lord Stanley. On May 10th, he'd write to Napier saying the British actually didn't want Port Natal and that the troops should be withdrawn immediately. As you know, letters took months to arrive, and long before Stanley's change of heart would hit the shores of Cape Town, a bloody confrontation was going to take place between the Boers and the Brits. There was still a chance of a negotiated solution, but Boers continued to flood into Congella. Eventually, their numbers rose to more than 500. On the British side, a brig called the Pilot was going to arrive on the 13th of May, loaded with provisions for Captain Smith, as well as a powerful 18-pounder cannon. Both sides were itching for a fight. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice, and you can head along to the website desmondlatham.blog to take a look at the maps and other images I've loaded linked to this episode. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.